passwords. Either they're too weak and therefore easy to guess, or we reuse them, which means an attacker can use them to gain access to multiple sites. One of the eight required domains in the current CISSP certification process is Identity and Access Management, or IAM. You might not think of it as a major aspect of security, and yet stolen credentials are really the key to data breaches today. Why pop a zero day when you can just unlock the front door with someone else's username and password, especially if no one's bothered to change it from admin, or better yet, only used one password across multiple different systems. So we need passwords, but passwords just aren't perfect. Okay, how exactly did we get on this treadmill with passwords? Fact is, we've long had passwords as a credential. For example, here's a Jerry Lewis scene from a 1950s film where he's trying to break into a Nazi German military base. Good. All right. Wait! I must have the password. Oh, well, if you must have it, that's wonderful. I'm glad you have that. Well, please, the password. You said you have the password. That's... Yeah, but how do I know you have the password? You didn't... Huh? You didn't say you knew I have the password? That's password, you know the password? Yeah, but I must have the password. Well, if you have it, then protect it. Stay with it. Don't lose it. Keep it forever. Where is the password? How do I know you have that password? Oh, have the password. Oh, but then what do you need it again? The first use of passwords with computing system dates back to the 1960s when Fernando Carbado at MIT first introduced the concept. Back then, these were dumb terminals on a smart mainframe, so computing time was shared among many people. Everything was stored on a single hard disk drive, so in order to keep the individual files private, a password was needed for individual access. So, why do we still use passwords today? In part, it's because of the larger identity problem. How do we know who's on the other side of a connection? To use a service, we enter our username and password, but this method of authentication is flawed. Either hashed or unhashed or hashed and salted, usernames and passwords can still be stolen and reused. And credential stuffing attacks are on the rise and behind some of the biggest breaches we see today. So there must be a better way. And there is. In a moment, I'll introduce you to someone who's been working in the identity and access management space for nearly two decades. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about identity from the perspective of a computing system and how all those online service and consumer devices we have in our home know who we are, whether it is through passwords or MFA or even the brave new world of passwordless identification. Consider this, a quick Crunchbase query reveals that since January 2018, there have been at least 159 funding rounds related to authentication technology, resulting in a staggering $3 billion of investment in IAM-related startup. As I produce this episode, there's even a startup in the IAM space that has recently secured a $50 million Series B funding. So there's something there with IAM. So I reached out to an expert in this field. 
Simon Moffat, uh, and I'm founder and analyst at a company called The Cyber Hut. Um, I've been either lucky or unfortunate to have spent just over 20 years in the identity and access management space, just through luck and through chance and, and working with industry and, and different software vendors and such. And it's been really fascinating just to see things change in the identity space, really. It's, you know, when I started off over 20 years ago, it was things were, you did everything by hand. You, you manually set up accounts within target systems. You manually reset people when they ring up the help desk and people didn't use MFA. They didn't use mobile phones. They didn't use biometrics and stuff. So the, things were very, very manual and it was very much a IT security thing. Whereas you sort of spin forward 20 years and identity is so pervasive. We, we use it every day sometimes without even realizing. And I feel quite privileged, I guess, to, to have witnessed all of those changes for good and bad. Simon and I used to work together at an identity and access management company. Uh, now I work as an independent analyst. So I have the, I, guess I, I think, quite a luxurious job really of, of, of speaking with different vendors, speaking with end users and customers and, and understanding really what, what's happening in the identity space, what, what technologies are emerging and what problems exist. And that's, that's, quite a, that's quite a nice job to have, I think. Identity. And I'm specifically talking about authentication, then to some degree authorization, as one of the most important yet least talked about aspects of info security. Ironically, you've hit a really good, interesting point. People, the hacker community, the dev community, they don't associate identity with being useful or being part of the security problem, which I think is actually part of the problem because what, what we're seeing now is identity is hugely front and center of uh, workforce and distributed consumer identity, everything online, but the dev aspect is very much on building the application and then testing the application. And this security stuff is like, it's got to sort of go somewhere. It's like, oh, the security guys, will they'll fix that. Whereas actually identity now, it's hugely important for registration, login, subsequent visit, like the whole host of use cases. And it's like, who's going to do that stuff? Who will own that? Who will manage it, maintain it, develop it, et cetera. So um. Yeah, it, it, it is at sometimes at risk of falling into a black hole of, of, of doom, you know, the lack of ownership there. So. so let's define some terms. What is identity? Interesting. I think traditionally, identity was very much employee-based. It was, it was focused within the workforce, number one, because typically that was a problem which needed to be fixed. You were very much concerned around making sure staff were created and set up appropriately to do their job. So the identity, inverted commas, aspect was basically you, you were trying to digitally describe a person that you had employed, that you were paying some money to go and do a particular role or function within the business. So identity is commonly used to onboard employees for their jobs, to sign them into systems, and conversely, lock them out of things that they should not have. Weirdly, the identity was a set of attributes, which probably came from some sort of trusted source, which was typically the human resources system. And you, you provide your attributes, your first name, your last name, maybe your address, perhaps, maybe your driver license number and other things um, into this, this secure source. And that would be used to describe the identity in the confines of um, an employee or as, a, as somebody working for an organization. Now, and it's not just in the work environment. If you look at Shakespeare, a majority of the plots revolve around mistaken identity, people pretending to be someone they are not. We have the concept of identity 
outside of, of the working environment. When we travel, for example, to a different country, we have this, this thing called a passport, you know, this physical thing that we hold in our hands and we use this physical thing to represent ourselves to the, the border control guy. And I think that is probably the, the one which most people resonate with, that it's this physical document, which again, has some attributes, some fields, some pieces of information in there, um, which somehow represents this physical person to somebody else. So these scraps of paper or digital records, they combine to somehow prove who you say you are. There's a set of attributes, there's some information there, and somehow it's trusted. And that's a really weird, subtle thing we take for granted that you trust a driver license, you trust a passport, you trust maybe a credit card or something with some attribute information on there. And you present that to somebody else and they they look at these weird fields, the first name, last name, date of birth, et cetera. Uh, and they trust this, the, the, these um, pieces of information. And somehow this auto magic link between this list of fields and a physical person, it's all this auto magically happens. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a very strange thing. Identity. It's quite a, it's quite difficult to define, I think. So what then is access management, the AM of IAM? That's the next uh, piece of the, the many jigsaw puzzle uh, components, I think. So the identity thing is, is trying to describe something. It's trying to describe that physical entity, a person typically, or maybe a, sometimes it's a thing in the modern world. And this access management stuff is really about identifying what that person can do. So in, in the identity world, you have you know, the identity gets defined. You have authentication to try and work out who this person or thing is in a sort of repeatable manner. And once you've done that, you have the access management stuff, which is the next piece, which is, okay, I know it's Simon or Joe Blogs or whoever. What can they do? What can they do within a system? What can they do within an application? What can they do within um, the workforce or the, the sort of job um, sort of uh, landscape? But you, you try to work out what they can do, which is the, the definition of authorization, essentially. This is Simon. What can he do today? What is he allowed to do within a particular system? And that's another very complex and subtly detailed world. Is there is it interchangeable to say access management and authorization, or are they distinct? I think access management is probably the the more overarching term. It, it's it's the general umbrella which contains things like authentication, authorization, rule set, policies, and all the sort of nuances within there. So I think access management is the, the sort of is becoming this broader umbrella term, if you like, which which decides what people can do within systems, how long they can do it for as well. So things like sessions and context and um, adaptive controls all start to sort of fall into this umbrella of, of access management. So I think authorization is probably more specific, more focused. Um, access management is, is probably more sort of generic umbrella term, I think. The problem then is that our modern identities, our sophisticated access management systems, are all still tied to something archaic like passwords. I mean, everything should have its own unique password, right? But to do that, you need some form of management system. When I wrote the book, The Art of Invisibility, with Kevin Mitnick, he and I went round and round on the subject of digital password managers. He loves password managers. I do not, preferring the old school mnemonics to create and store my strong passwords. Oh, that's, that's, it's a really good one, this. And you, you can ask 10 people and you will, you will easily get five different answers. And you'll definitely get the, the, the two camps. I, I use a password manager. I, I use one every day. Um, 
weirdly, I was I was actually frowning against my password manager this morning. I won't uh, name which one I, I use, which I actually pay for as well. But it was making me incredibly frustrated this morning because I couldn't log back in. I had to reboot my laptop and I had to log back into my password vault. And clearly I was in this cyclical loop of not being able to log in. I had MFA enabled my device. I couldn't log into that. And I, it then sent me an email uh, to verify my login, but I couldn't log into my email because I wasn't logged into my password manager. So I could pass the password into my email. Um, so that was a bit of a frustration. But in in general, I think there are they, they, they help. Um, there's a caveat to this, of course, because they they essentially elongate the use of passwords still. It's another sticking plaster. You know, it, it allows us to all continue using passwords. And yeah, they're really good at, at generating secure passwords. You can generate a 20-character unique password with the uh, you know the the um special character alphanumeric uppercase lowercase letters etc they can they can do that that's great they can make unique passwords that's great they can audit your passwords across multiple sites if you're reusing things or perhaps if there's been a breach they can reset things automatically that's they're all great use cases but the flip side of course is it allows this ecosystem of usernames and passwords to still exist essentially and proliferate. Um, so it's again, it's back to this sticking plaster style process and it's allowing passwords to still exist. Unfortunately, it's like an overlay, like an overlay sticking plaster on top. And I think at some point we are going to have to accept that passwords should be consigned to the, the legacy technology scrap heap and we should try to move to, towards something new. Okay, so passwords are everywhere, and they probably weren't intended to be used as such. So, where are we with identity and access management today? Um, I think I think identity is it, it's really emerged as um. It's such a foundational technology. I think it's always been important for, I think we mentioned earlier, you know, about, about the, the sort of intra-country sort of use cases, passports and driving licenses. That, that's been around for, for quite a while. And then the employee space, you're managing employees and contractors has been around really since since the computer age. Authentication, you know, working out who somebody is, you know, typically used to be this username and password combination, something we're familiar with um, all day, every day. I've we logged into six or seven applications and websites today with usernames and passwords, which are um, uh, everywhere, unfortunately. And the, the weaknesses of, of that are pretty well known. So we talked about different forms of identification, how you might not just need to have one, like a driver's license, but two, a passport as well. It seems to me that that's where we get into multi-factor authentication, that the composite of different forms of ID tells someone who we are. Yet, for the moment, we seem to be stuck on just using username and password for everything. Usernames and passwords are, there's no cost to, to, to build an application and put a username and password in there. And so by that, I mean, if, if you're a developer, libraries are available. Um, it's, it's easy to do it. It's easy just to apply usernames and, and passwords within a particular setting. Unfortunately, there's a whole host of different um, security failures with that approach. I think a quick Google search last time I did it was, you know, why are passwords bad? And I think it came out at about 24 million hits on Google. 
Okay, I've probably written a fair amount of those articles on why passwords are weak or just plain bad. I know. I've written about how criminal hackers can use smash and grab hashed passwords and then use Hashcat or John the Ripper to work out their clear text equivalents and then use those credentials elsewhere. Using usernames and passwords is, is known essentially to be to be not a great user experience and be the numerous ways that that can be a vulnerability. So we started to see this introduction of of a multi-factor authentication aspect. Typically, there are three factors of authentication. Something you know, like a password. Something you are, like a biometric. And something you have, like a chip or a dongle. Having two or more of these is considered multi-factor authentication. So it isn't just something... Uh, you know, like a username and a password or a pin, um, but it's more about perhaps something you are. So it's like a, a biometric sort of um, uh, tied to your physical entity, or maybe even something you have, like a, a mobile device or a, a physical token, which which is, is, you belo- belongs to you, and you put it in your wallet. You, you, you make sure you don't lose those things. So authentication then suddenly becoming this this multifaceted aspect. So it's typically something you know, which is a username and password, and then probably something you have as well, or maybe something you are. And you try to select two of those three. And it, it's the, the, the concept being there's, there's multiple channels that an adversary needs to essentially breach or attack for, for them to be successful. And there are multiple different ways of, of doing the, the MFA aspect, some of which are, I guess, more, more popular than others. But I think all of them try to, to satisfy this, this security and usability conundrum. The, the security and usability always they always collide. They're always in conflict. And I think MFA is it's really at the forefront of, of that collision, I think. So now you type in a password and your phone buzzes with a limited time password sent via text. That's two-factor authentication. And it's certainly much more secure than just username and password alone. So does the use of other ways of authentication start to get us towards passwordless? Yes, that's it's a great question. It's a great question. I think we then have this MFA aspect, which was really the sort of sticking plaster, if you like, to try and fix the vulnerabilities with usernames and passwords. So the classic one is something like sending a one-time password, perhaps, to um, a mobile device via a text message or perhaps sending a one-time password via an email. Um, neither of which are particularly great from a usability perspective, and honestly, neither of which are particularly secure either from a, um, a sort of adversarial pre- prevention perspective. So some of the MFA starts to get more advanced. We start talking about push authentication, where something gets pushed to your device, maybe a notification, and you maybe swipe to accept it or click a button to, to tick it. Changing people's behavior is hard. You have to incentivize them to do something different. Adding more friction to a login process or purchase, while it's great for security, is not so great for the user. They will resist. Fortunately, there are simple steps to make increased security more on the back end and better for the user. And they're great. You know, it, it's improved security. Usability is becoming more improved with each, each, each sort of passing six months, the usability starts to get, gets better and better. But typically, most MFAs still rely on some sort of shared secret, something shared between me as an identity and the service that you're engaging with, maybe like a seed or some sort of um, component which which can generate one-time passwords or perhaps uh, maybe a key which is shared between the device and the service itself. So we're still in this realm of of something you know. There's still a a password-based concept, something which has to exist on 
the service side and on the mobile device side or on the client side. So there's a move toward passwordless access, which is weird because we've built up this trust around self-generated attributes. Now we're looking for something else. Passwordless really is trying to move us into a new era. So we're not relying on, on something that the person has generated, like a pin or a secret or a password. It's entirely reliant on something different, which is typically a cryptographic based challenge response style process. So there's, there's, there's nothing, there's no secrets, there's no keys um, that can be um, sort of generated or shared, but it's using cryptography in a way which is typically asymmetric. So there's a, a private key and a public key, and there's a, a challenge mechanism between the service provider and the, maybe the mobile device to identify if you have possession of these private keys. So there's no, there's nothing shared there in the sense of pins or passwords. So isn't this just MFA on steroids? I think that that's that's quite a subtle difference where the, the MFA world it often needs a username and password first, and then something else happens, like a push notification, for example. Whereas in this passwordless world, that's uh, a very different flow. It's very much a, it could be reliant on biometrics. It could well be reliant on on cryptography, but it, it's there's nothing reliant on, on an email address and a password, those, those things are not really a prerequisite to, to make that stuff work. So I keep thinking in the back of my mind, there's something around tokens. Is that something entirely different? Well, I think tokens are typically what, what I guess what happens once somebody has authenticated. So once the authentication event is taking place, and you've identified it. Yeah, this is this is Simon coming back, and we've gone through this authentication process. Maybe a, a biometric on a mobile device, and there's been some sort of clever cryptography going on in the background, and a, a sort of challenge response style um, process taking place. Once that has completed successfully, then we sort of get into the realms of things like access tokens and ID tokens, which then get issued um, to the device or to the, the, the interaction which is taking place. And I guess these tokens are really the sort of um, the output of the authentication process, which are objects which can be passed around between different APIs and different web services to essentially represent my identity for a, a limited duration, um, perhaps maybe one minute or one hour, but a relatively short period of time. And, and these tokens can be presented to lots of different services and they essentially are acting as the proxy to my identity for like I present my ID token to say, look, this, this is Simon, this, these are some attributes or claims that represent who this person is, but they've only got a relatively short lifespan. And typically when the token expires, because it'll have a sort of an expiration date of time associated with it, you have to go through the process again. You have to get a new token and get a new representation of yourself or maybe an access token, which can represent what you can do to those downstream services. So the tokens are very important and they are really the sort of output of the sort of authentication event. So unlike passwords, which can be reused over and over to gain access, having a token to a specific aspect of access that automatically is time bomb, that does the attacker no good. Exactly. Yeah, exactly that. I think it's like any sort of basic security premise, you want to be you want to be limiting any um, sort of attack vector, if you like, or any sort of attack landscape and, and reducing that through segmentation. So you sort of limit anything which can be stolen or, or uh, intercepted or used, limit the impact of that. And you can do that through reducing the scope of those access tokens. So what those tokens can actually do, um, you know, limiting access, these privileged style concepts there, 
limiting through time, as you mentioned. So if you do issue a session or a cookie or an access token, make sure those uh, tokens are issued the very, very short lifespan seconds, minutes, for example. Um, so if they are stolen, the impact is is lowered. Okay, nothing is foolproof. You know, we talk about risk as a sort of general concept and you talk about the likelihood of something occurring and the impact of it occurring and sort of two big levers like people pull in this sort of risk management landscape and the likelihood you probably sometimes can't do a great deal with, but the impact you can and you want to reduce the impact of adversarial activity and reducing the scope of something, reducing the lifespan of, of a token or a cookie or something. Pretty simple levers that you know service providers and developers can use to stop the impact of a, of a theft. You, you sort of have to assume you will be breached, number one. Yeah. Tokens will be stolen, passwords will be breached. Um, even MFA components could be compromised as well. So you always start, you know, start thinking around bad stuff is going to happen and how can I reduce the impact of that? And least privilege, reducing the scope of, of tokens and what can these tokens do, make it, making sure they are as, as limited as possible without, of course, impacting usability. And time is a great one. Just reduce the exposure for something. Don't, don't have tokens which last hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months before you have to sort of revalidate because clearly an adversary could, could steal that within the first second and they may then have a, a very long window where they could you know, do bad things. So turning that around, then stealing the keys or the seed would be something that an attacker might want to do. And so the security around that probably needs to be heaviest. Yeah, that's it's really interesting. Isn't it? I think the more you look at authentication in general, and to be honest, we've made some great strides to improving authentication over the last three or four or five years. And the the I guess the bigger the walls, and the, the, the better we become at forming authentication. The adversaries are typically lazy. You know, they're going to they're going to find the the easiest method of of forming a data breach or gaining access which they they shouldn't have. So so they will go for the low hanging fruit. So if we move away from usernames and passwords and the ability to steal a password, for example, uh, we leverage MFA. Well, the adversary is probably going to try and find the thing which has the most value, which could well be the private key or, you know, as you say, there's a seed to a one-time password generator. Um, so the, the adversary starts to move their hose pipe and tries to find the, 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 the biggest reward for the effort that they're going to put into these things. And suddenly you start to move on to the next level, which is things like maybe social engineering or perhaps methods of, of coercing the user of, of, of out, out of their authentication capabilities through phishing sites or maybe, you know, sort of socially engineer the end user into believing they're logging into a, a correct website, for example. So absolutely, we can improve the protection of certain things, but you're sort of left shifting the problem a little bit. And if we rely on things like MFA, well, okay, you need to then protect the seeds, the private keys, the, the, the things which are being used in those sort of challenge response mechanisms as well. And you have to protect those. And it's the key, it's like, it's like the keys to the castle style use case, you know, in, in sort of privilege access management world, if, if you have um, one master password, which perhaps is, is part of your password vault, for example, well, that's great. But then the adversary may well attack uh, that pinch point and, and that becomes the reward for breaching that becomes much, much bigger. And I think that is, that is something we need to be aware of. So 
So Simon's been around IAM for a while. You'd think he has some great stories to share, either from experience or that he knows through others. Instead, he offers a third-party site with even more stories and information. You look at things like breaches and you look at um, adversarial activity, which is the stuff people are interested in. But they, people like bad news. They like to understand, you know, what's the, what's the, where's the bad things that are happening, whether it's a, a breach or it's a bad implementation or a, uh, the, you know, going through a, a corpus of a breach where the breach notifications occurred. And it's like, well, actually, how did this happen? And, and there's quite a few a good anecdote. So there's um, a site in, in the UK, the, the uh, ICO, the uh, Information Commissioner's Office, which is responsible for um, uh, data breach management sort of stuff. It's an independent office. And they, they, they're the guys who give out fines, essentially, if, if you have gone through and had a data breach and, and weren't necessarily doing the things you, you should have been doing. And they issue fines uh, quite, quite regularly, actually. The ICO is a site within the UK. It is set up to uphold the information rights in the public interest. Think about that. Information rights. As, as an American, I marvel at this idea that someone might be interested in protecting my right to privacy online. And that if something were to happen, here's this non-governmental agency set up to help. In most cases, this regards the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, and in the UK, that law continues now as the UK GDPR. What they equally do, they, they publish notifications as well. So they publish essentially the, the analysis of, of some of these data breach occurrences and the, what happened and why, and why was the fine issued and um, why was this organisation uh, sort of hauled over the coals and, and given a whatever, $50,000 or $10 million fine or whatever it could be. And they're quite interesting because you then start to see some of the failings perhaps in design, in user management, password management. They're quite interesting um, detail there, which obviously not everybody goes through and reads, but there's lots of valuable information and not just on, aha, they're the bad guys, look what they've done, look at the mistakes they've made, but there's good learning experience there as well. And I think it is an exercise that, that they're, they're pretty fun to look at those credentials. And um, those breach reports, if it's a public entity, they typically have to release that information through things like the SEC in the US and the uh, company's house and stuff in the UK. They have to sort of release the information around data breach, how it happened, why it happened, why people were able to, to um, log in with stolen credentials or perhaps how certain MFA components were bypassed. And they are quite interesting stories. And I'm, I'm not going to go name individual companies, but it, it's certainly worth, it's publicly available information. It's, it's certainly worth a good read, I think. Let's turn that around. In reading those, is there anything that Simon has seen more often than not? Did this company do the right thing? Did they do the same thing? What, what is he seeing most frequently? I think it's just using passwords. I think many organizations, certainly if you look at the consumer-facing um, landscape where uh, you, know, you are a um, you're, you're pulling in identity information from consumers, citizens, customers, you're selling stuff or your government department doing things online. Um, I think the consistent aspect is if you are using usernames and passwords, you know, there's some really simple things to do to mitigate the impact of anything bad that can happen. So how, how are you storing usernames and passwords, number one? Where are they stored? Are you using a decent hashing algorithm to protect that password? In the 1970s, while working for Bell Labs, Robert Morris Sr. came up with the idea of a one-way algorithm, a means of encryption that isn't easily decrypted. 
He called it hashing, and this prevented passwords from being stored in the clear on databases. Instead, systems stored the hash of a given password. Um, and the subtle difference between you know, encrypting a password and hashing, you know, the, everyone thinks, ah, oh, let's encrypt it, let's just throw cryptography uh, at this problem. Well, actually, well, if you encrypt a password, it can be decrypted, which clearly then is another um, sort of attack point. An adversary will, will, will look to find the method of, of decryption and clearly they can reverse the password. So leveraging a storage mechanism for passwords, which is irreversible, which is a hashing um, algorithm, which this is all quite well known. It's well documented. There are, there are mechanisms to do this. And because everybody's using usernames and passwords, how those passwords are being stored is, is really simple. You know, in, in there are some things which you can do to advance the storage and using hashing and maybe using assaults and distributing where those things are stored. Hashing is supposed to be a one-way algorithm, meaning that it's not possible to decrypt it. In reality, bad actors still do so in some cases. What that really means is that someone could, in parallel, generate their own hashes with Hashcat or John the Ripper, and then compare the results of that to a table of stolen hashes to figure out the clear text credentials. SALT then adds additional entropy to the mix. By adding SALT to a hash, you've just complicated the process by adding additional randomness so the hashes won't easily match anything you've generated on your own. Simon offers additional best practices. And other basic things as well, like disabling accounts which are not in use. You know, if, if, if somebody hasn't logged in for maybe 90 days, disable the account. You know, allow them to, you know, uh, re-enable themselves if they wish to come back. But if they're not using something, close down the access, disable things. And really small little workflow steps. That's quite. These are cheap things to do, cheap from a, a workflow perspective, cheap from a development perspective, um, simple, quick, easy things, which can really they make a big, a big difference, actually. Um, and if you're then looking to do things like MFA, make sure the MFA is, is adopted. You know, Try and push out adoption to as many users within your community as possible, which, again, it's, that seems really obvious thing to say, but many MFA projects often have quite low adoption rates. Perhaps they aren't aware of it. Perhaps they're not incentivized to leverage multi-factor authentication, or perhaps it's just too damn complicated and people don't ever uh, want to sign up and use it. So there's lots and lots of little nudges and little cheap wins, if you like, and it's it's worth going through and just doing a quick audit and a quick checklist to, to see what you can do, which is cheap, quick, easy, free, essentially, to improve security. So we mentioned some improvements around authentication in the last three to five years. I asked Simon what he meant by that, and if he could point to an example. I think um, we need to think of authentication in, in a few different sort of areas. I think number one, clearly there's a, there's a security side to this. You know, the whole point of authentication is working out who somebody is, but the flip side is that usability conundrum. I mentioned earlier that this, this conflict between uh, usability how easy something is to use, the satisfaction of the end user, uh, the speed in which they can complete a particular task. Can they do it without you know, help and having to speak to somebody or, or uh, get assistance from, from somewhere else? So you have that usability aspect as well as security. And I, I do think both aspects are important for authentication. And I, th I think, and honestly, in the last three or five years, both have actually moved forward 
pretty substantially. I think the the end user, inverted commas, you know, the guy who doesn't really care about this stuff. They want to make a purchase on on e-commerce site. They want to do some online banking. They want to watch a movie on their favorite sort of media platform. They want to go about doing something. They they, they don't want to think about how they've authenticated, how they are logging in. Right. I don't want to be interrupted all the time to prove that I am who I am. On the other hand, I don't want to be a victim of fraud. So how do you walk that thin line between security and convenience? So I think there's, there's a huge, been huge improvements in um, sort of end user awareness in training and you know, things like push authentication, leveraging your um, mobile device to respond to authentication events, using your mobile device with a fingerprint on the front or on the back to log in or maybe face ID or the sort of equivalent on Android. Most people are quite familiar with that now. They, they feel comfortable with, you know, taking their mobile device and putting it up to their face, taking a picture, maybe blinking to, to, to represent a bit of bit of liveness to make sure they're not a, a dummy or a, you know, a picture or something. So those sorts of little usability nudges, I think, are now quite well ingrained to the standard end user who, doesn't really know about security and it doesn't really need to care about security, but they just, they want to go about their day-to-day job at work, doing work-related, employment-related use cases, or in the consumer space, making purchases and doing things online. I think that usability and awareness aspect, I think that that's improved hugely. And then clearly the security side is, is constantly iterating as well with, with numerous different projects, initiatives like WebAuth and OWASP and others where they amplify good coding practices around authentication, good best practices in general around how to use authentication capability. So it's, it's a quite a long answer to your question, but I, I think the usability and security both are, are incrementally getting better every sort of three or six months we're seeing improvements there, I think. Okay, we just mentioned some standards such as OAuth. Is that making it easier for developers to build in better authentication? Um, I think it does. I mean, I think there's, there's, a few, there's a few different standards which are really important, really, in, in this ecosystem. I think um, OAuth is really the, the sort of result of the authentication aspect. It's all about the, the authorization part and, and issuing an access token to, to sort of represent myself and, and what can Sun do against a particular service. The sort of associated authentication aspect is is a thing called OpenID Connect, and they sort of go hand in hand, essentially, where OpenID Connect it's very much focused on representing the person. So representing me with a, an ID token, like an identity token. Um, and the issuance of the ID token is typically tied to this authentication event, whether it's usernames, passwords, biometrics, passwordless. It's, it doesn't really matter. It's quite decoupled in, 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 its, in its relationship, which I think is very important as well, because developers, they, they want to develop applications. They, they typically don't necessarily want to go and mess around with security stuff unless they are, obviously, of course, security developers. But developers want to build stuff and build stuff of value. And, and having standards like OpenID Connect to represent the identity, OAuth 2 to represent the access. And we're also starting to see some um, sort of new innovative approaches um, to authentication with the standard called WebAuth or WebAuthN, which um, has been around a couple of years now, which is looking to, to to promote this concept of, of passwordless authentication using using cryptography. Web Authentication API, also known as WebAuthN, allows servers to register and authenticate users using public key cryptography instead of always providing a password. 
Public key cryptography, which was invented in the 1970s, is a solution to the problem of shared secrets. Public key cryptography uses the concept of a key pair, a private key that is stored securely with the user and a public key that can be shared with the server. These keys are random numbers that have a mathematical relationship with each other. We use public key cryptography and HTTPS, and it secures how we access our financial services or even how we order online. WebAuthn was written by W3C and Fido, with the participation of Google, Mozilla, Microsoft, and Yubico. So it's automatically baked into the Edge, Chrome, and Firefox browsers. Functionally, it allows you to instantly log into a website if you've already registered a device with that site. I guess one of the backstories with with you know things like web warfare and what what is it trying to achieve? You know what's it what what the problems it's, it's trying to fix? And a big a big problem you have in the username and password space is you typically use the same password and same email address or user ID across multiple different sites. It's you sort of you you work out a good password and you think it's the best password in the, in the world and you typically reuse it because that's what, what people do. They don't want to have to think of lots of different passwords and. Clearly, what happens is one website gets breached uh, because you've used the same password. Uh, the adversary will just sort of attack all of the top 10 websites you may have registered with with that breach credential. And there's a huge problem there because it's reused. So you start to be breached across multiple different sites. And the, the WebAuth N um, standard really was looking to do a couple of things. One, clearly remove passwords from this whole authentication equation and, and leverage public key cryptography, which has been around since the 1970s. And you have this, this asymmetric aspect where you have a, a private key, which you should keep private, and a public key, which is, is uh, publicly distributed. And these become unique per website or per service you interact with. So even if website A was, was breached and they happen to, to, to be um, you know, at risk of, of losing credentials, it doesn't then impact a second website that you're using WebAuthn with because they've all, they've all got their own separate uh, individual keys, which it, it's that sort of um, segmentation or the, the sort of ballast use case you get in ships where you have like each of the, the, the ship's cargo is, is is neatly compartmentalized. So if the ship hits a rock and it starts to flood, it only floods a certain part of the of the ship. And it's it's similar to what sort of WebAuthn is trying to achieve where each website essentially has a unique set of credentials. So even if they do get breached, it has very, very limited impact, which I think is is quite smart, really. So, as we said at the top of the show, developers and hackers may not be paying as much attention to identity. Here's a case where developers can build in passwordless security to their sites, if they know about it. So, yeah, another standard, which is, it can seem a bit intimidating, because that's something else you have to learn, I guess, as a developer. But equally, the, the hard work of design and how it should work and, and what you should do is being done for you. So... Uh, as the number of libraries increase and the awareness and the training and the knowledge increases, you start to have these individual building blocks to allow application developers to say, ah, okay, I need to perform an authentication event or I need passwordless or I need um, access control or whatever it could be. You can start to pick and, and bolt together ah, a bit of Auth2 and a bit of WebAuth, a bit of OpenID Connect, and you can start to build these um, sort of standards in, in a quite an interoperable way, really, because they're all doing slightly different things. So I think standards have a, have a huge part to play, really.
So it sounds like we're making great progress eliminating passwords and making systems more secure. Wait, what? No, we're still toiling with this password mess? Well then, where might be the problem be? Well, I think the, the area which is starting to dominate more is this consumer or customer identity space. So how we essentially do things online is, 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 um, you know, is people, as citizens, as customers and consumers, and that's typically going to be focused on things like financial services, maybe able to do your online banking, being able to move money around digitally without having to, to use cash or going to a, a branch to do something, being able to consume content online, movies, books, um, uh, TV, films, et cetera, et cetera, in a digital manner, being able to purchase things online, you know, being able to, on your mobile device, one click, purchase, done, and the next day something is delivered in your house. So I think in the consumer space, financial services, retail, e-commerce, that huge um, area of financial transactions is seen huge uh, consumption of identity services over the last sort of three to five years. And I only see that increasing further, I think. Has COVID contributed to that consumer growth? I think it, I think it has. COVID has accelerated everything. Um, maybe not necessarily introduced new things, but maybe just accelerated the course of direction for both consumers and the sort of employee and workforce space. Um, I guess in, in the workforce, we're all working from home or working from somewhere, coffee shops and, and the beach or whatever. Um, so that, that's a whole host of different problems. How do, we, how do we work from home? How do we log into these systems, which traditionally may be sort of stored in data centers and now perhaps they're all in different cloud repositories in different places. So how do I log into my work laptop securely? How do I access these systems to, to do my job? In the consumer space, I'm doing everything online. I can't, I can't go to a bank because uh, A, the bank's closed down, but even if it hasn't closed down, it probably doesn't exist anyway, and I probably couldn't get in there. So from a consumer perspective, we have to do everything online. We have to order food, you have to get deliveries, do your banking, insurance, government services, everything's digital. And then how do you uh, consume those services? How do I register? How do I log in? How do I represent myself digitally to all of these online services? So I think, yeah, COVID is, is a huge impact in, in moving to, to doing things online. It was, it was interesting. I was speaking to a guy last week about uh, the use of QR codes um, uh, as, as a method of, of getting information. But what's certainly happened in the UK and in the US and other places where you go to a restaurant or a pub, um, there's no physical menu anymore because it's a COVID carrying, you know, it's a COVID carrying uh, object. So chuck all the menus in the bin, you just get a QR code and you go into the restaurant or pub, you scan the QR code on your device, you get a nice menu on your mobile phone, uh, and then perhaps you may even order from the mobile phone in the eatery or the, the, the pub or whatever, click, 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 press. You may then do a, um, an online transaction or release some money somehow through that, that website, and then obviously 15 minutes later, your food and drink arrive at your table. And that's now just a common standard way of, of interacting, you know, using mobile or doing things digitally, um, even if it's a physical setting. So that's quite a sort of hybrid style use case, which I think COVID is, is definitely amplified. So given that he's been in the space for nearly two decades, does Simon have any wisdom to offer? I think um, the, the good thing, I think, is identities is here to stay. And it's, it's, it's such, um, it's impacting everybody's day-to-day -day lives in a positive way, I, I hasten to add. I think, yes, COVID is hugely impacting 
everything we do. You know, it's it's got huge ramifications, which we will probably see for the next 10 years, if if not more, I guess, in our social interactions and then everything else. And I think the exciting thing, I guess, for me as an identity sort of specialist or whatever, is identities is foundational to that. You know, how I behave online as a as an employee or as a as a consumer, um, that's needs identity it needs how do i authenticate and present myself how do i register to services how do i share my personal information to third-party services how do i buy and consume things um i need to do this securely i need to do it in a way which doesn't inhibit me i, I want it to be usable and um improve my satisfaction around, around doing this stuff and i think we're making some huge strides towards that i think there's some really cool innovative startups in this space doing really excellent things around sort of machine learning and biometrics and being able to represent ourselves digitally in a, in a secure and, and, and usable way um but i think for that to work i think the uh, service providers and companies and businesses and application owners they all appreciate identity is important it's the oil now which is allowing us all to interact with each other and allow us to do our jobs and, and do things online. So I think that those two things are, are pretty exciting, actually. You don't need to sort of go into somewhere and amplify the benefits of identity management or access management or multi-factor authentication or passwordless. People are on board with that. They, they, they want to have good identity-based experiences. And I think that's that's been a huge change, I think, over the last three or four years. I'd like to thank my friend, Simon Moffat, for sharing his IAM experience and offering a look at the future with passwordless authentication. If we keep focusing on removing the low-hanging fruit, such as weak passwords, hopefully we can add more friction to the attacks, and maybe the bad actors will go away. I know, it's wishful thinking, but it is an arms race, and if it keeps my employer from having me change my passwords every 90 days, then why not go for it? Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on subreddit or Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I remain the hard-to-authenticate Robert Vimosi.